Genesis chapter 22, I think this is an incredibly, incredibly encouraging message this morning. I mentioned on Wednesday night we were going to cover a whole two verses this morning. Now, you've got to trust me on this. It's worth it. It's worth the ride, the journey. But there, is, there are two things this morning that I want you to hear that I think will really bless you. And may even change your perspective a little bit on how we live this life and, and how we make it through. As, as Harlan was saying, life is about change. And every day we seem to be going through changes, and, and we don't really like change, but it happens despite that. But God has given us two things this morning we'll see that are very encouraging. Genesis 22, verse 1. Now it came about after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham. And he said, Here I am, which is what you say when God says your name. He said, Take now your son, your only son whom you love, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. Unbelievable. Incredible. Abraham has walked with God now some 57 years. He has seen him move. He has experienced amazing things, especially and most amazing of all, his son Isaac. He recalls the birth of his son, how wonderful, what a blessing it was. He recalls prior to that the birth of another son, Ishmael, who was of the flesh, who was not God's plan, not God's idea, but Abraham and Sarah's idea. And then Isaac comes along and Abraham realizes, wow, God does what he says he will do. And then in 57 years of walking with God, of struggling along, of, of developing this deep and, and quite amazing faith, God comes to him and makes an unbelievable and outlandish request. Take your son, Isaac, laughter. Take your joy, offer it up to me as a sacrifice, as a burnt offering in the land of Moriah on a mountain which I will show you. Why does God... The real God asked such a thing of Abraham. You see, at that time, it was the practice of the Philistines to offer their children to their god, Molech. To offer a burnt offering of their children to appease their angry god, Molech. And Abraham, aware of this, now his, has his god, the real god, the god he's been following, ask of him the same thing. Offer your son Isaac as a burnt offering, an abomination. Why does he do it? And furthermore, what could possibly compel Abraham to do such a thing? I want us to understand two things this morning. Incredibly practical to the way we live our lives today, but very clearly seen in these two verses and in the life of Abraham. Two things, two words you may want to jot down and we'll look at these. Preparation and motivation. Preparation and motivation. Before we look at him, let's ask God to bless our study. Lord Jesus, <clears throat> our Father, Spirit, will you be our teacher this morning and open our eyes to the things of Scripture. Speak to us through these ancient words that are so fresh and so new even today. Words spoken by you, Father, in your heart from the beginning of, of time that still ring true. Speak these words to us and give us hope Give us, Lord, encouragement and a blessing as we simply seek 
to know you and to love you better. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, let's look back at verse 1 again. It came about after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, Here I am. Abraham is now roughly somewhere between 130 and 135 years old, and he is about to climb a great mountain, Mount Moriah. Now, it has been called, Mount Moriah has been called the highest mountain peak in the world. Although it's not physically, that honor actually goes to Mount Everest. In truth, Mount Moriah isn't even a mountain at all. There's really not much to it. When Cheryl and I were in college in Abilene, Texas, before I had gone out there, I had heard that the school was actually on the hill. They called it the hill. And students who went there said, yes, it's on the hill. And, and so I looked forward to getting to Abilene and, and driving in my car and driving up the hill to the campus. And I kind of pictured in my mind this, this sprawling campus that overlooked the whole city of Abilene. I thought, this will be cool. I'll be living on the hill. And everyone who had gone to Abilene said, yeah, it's on the hill. Well, we got in our little Toyota Corolla S5, drove through the deserts with no air conditioning. It was a miserable, miserable drive. But when we finally got to Abilene, we crossed south first and then north first, came up the street, made a right, headed, and, and it kind of dipped down a little bit, and then there was a slight rise, and there was the campus in front of me. And I said, where was the hill? Now, after I had lived in Abilene for four years, I understood when everything is absolutely flat, a hill is anything over three inches above the ground. It was an ant hill. There was nothing to it. Folks, Mount Moriah is the same way. If you were to travel to Jerusalem today and walk through the old city, you might not even know that you were standing on it. You might not even recognize that it's there. As a matter of fact, it runs through the old city outside the gate and it peaks as a hill roughly 100 to 200 feet above the city. Not much to it. Where we live in Washington State, we would not call it Mount Moriah. We might call it Hill Moriah or Bump Moriah or Ridge Moriah, but certainly not Mount. And yet it is the greatest peak in all the world, for it is the pinnacle of Abraham's faith. It's the height of God's love. What occurs on Mount Moriah across history, not only with Isaac, but also later, as you will see, with Jesus, it is the most important mountain in history. But I want you to think for a moment. Imagine the climb for Abraham as God has asked him to do that. And now he's taking his son Isaac with him. Isaac probably around 33 years old at the time. We see pictures of him painted as a little baby or as a child. But that's probably not the way it was. Not accurate to scripture if you look at the context. He was probably in his early 30s. And Abraham is now climbing this mountain. Consider the burden that he had to pack in. The sheer emotional trauma of knowing he was going to kill his son. His promised son. The son whom he loved. I want you to notice two important phrases in verse 1 here. As we consider this concept of preparation. Phrase number 1 is, after these things. After these things. Now those of you who know I put great stock in this phrase, uh, who went through a revelation study with me a little while ago, you know in the New Testament this same phrase in the Greek is metatauta. Very good. You remember. Metatauta, after these things. And in the book of Revelation, by the way, a side note, and I am dying here. I've got to tell you, I'm dying to teach Revelation again. I'm dying to. Because here we are in Genesis with this plan to go through the whole Bible. 
Which means those of you who never got to go through the Revelation study have about 10 years before we get there. And actually, I'm, I'm brewing a little plan in my mind. I'm plotting. I'm scheming. I'm thinking, how could we, could we do a weekend retreat and do Revelation in a weekend? Would that be awesome? Wouldn't that be cool? And at the end of the weekend, Jesus comes and it's all over. So that's what I'm planning. I don't know if, if God's going to go for that. But... Metatauta in the book of Revelation, this is very important, is a phrase that moves you through the narrative. One of the reasons why people misunderstand that book, and this is completely a side note, has nothing to do with the message this morning, but it's important. One of the reasons why people have difficulty understanding Revelation is they try to allegorize it. They try to read into it and make it more or different than what it is. Metatauta, after these things, helps you move through the book. You realize, as you see this phrase over and over, that it is a literal, progressive process. As opposed to things happening in all different order. Everything happens along a chronological timeline as you study the book of Revelation. Just understanding that much makes a massive difference in your theology about Jesus' return. About things like the rapture and the millennium and, and other ideas like that. We'll talk about that one day, and we will. We'll have a retreat or a couple of weekends in a row or something where we do a massive just revelation race through the book study, and that'll be a lot of fun. But here we see something very important, and the context is a little different. The Bible says after these things God tested Abraham because not only does after these things mean a forward momentum, a logical systematic progression, it also speaks of preparation. After these things, after what things? After everything that had happened in Abraham's life. Understand that God didn't go to Abraham and say, Abraham, I want you to leave Ur of the Chaldees. I want you to leave the land of your family and your father and your house and go to a land that I'll show you. And so Abraham goes and when he arrives, God says, okay, I'm going to give you a baby. And within one year he has a baby. And then God says, okay, now I want you to sacrifice that child. Folks, I don't think Abraham could have done it. Not a year into it. Sometimes we become Christians and within a year of becoming a Christian, we don't understand why we're still struggling with sin. Let me give you a little hint. If you are a long-term Christian or a short-term Christian or you've never become a Christian at all, guess what? You always struggle with sin. It gets better. It gets better. And as Harlan talked about change, that was so appropriate because God is always changing us in the act of preparation. The act of preparation. Then 11.30 a.m. May 29th, 1953, the BBC announced that Sir Edmund Hillary had reached the summit of Mount Everest. Five years went into his team's intensive preparation to climb that mountain. They retrained their lungs to breathe with very little oxygen. They worked out constantly. They carried packs up and down and up and down smaller mountains and then larger and larger mountains, all in preparation, all getting ready for that climb up Mount Everest. And when they had done it, at that point, they were ready for it. When Abraham comes to Mount Moriah, when he is asked by the father to sacrifice his son, he has at that point been prepared, ready. After these things, Abraham's walk of faith was a 57-year process of preparation. Which brings us to the second important phrase in verse 1, and that's that God tested Abraham. Wait a minute. I didn't think God tested anybody. I mean, doesn't Jesus pray, lead us not into temptation? 
Didn't James say in chapter 1 verse 13, Let no one say when he is tempted that I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and He Himself does not tempt anyone. But right here we see God tested Abraham. What's the deal? Well, in the Hebrew word for tested, it's nasah. And the Hebrew word means both tested and or tempted. It means both caused to stumble or proven, tried as true. They don't have two separate words for two separate ideas. It's one word that means both, either tested or tempted. And Jesus gives us an example of this in his life. People have asked the question, could Jesus be tempted? A couple of examples, Matthew chapter 4 verse 1, he was led up by the Spirit. By the Spirit. Don't miss this. Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted. That's what the Bible tells us. He was tempted by the devil, but it was the Spirit that drove Jesus into the wilderness. The central issue here isn't, could Jesus sin? As people like to kind of debate, could he sin? Is it possible that God in his perfection could sin? Because wouldn't he be able to? If, if it's true that he was tempted, he'd have to be able to sin. And all that argument, you know what? That is not the central issue. The central issue is this. Was Jesus proven true? Was he tested true? Was he pure? Was he inspected for innocence? Was he scrutinized for sinlessness? Going through the process of temptation was not so that Jesus could prove to himself that he was pure. It was so that Jesus could prove to us that he was pure. That he was solid. That he was the kind of bridge a man could walk across. You know, when a bridge is built, people don't just build it and say, Okay, someone go. They test it. They test it with weight and, and they put stress on it and strain on it to make sure that it's solid before cars begin to travel across or trains begin to travel across. That's what the temptation of Jesus was about. A proving to all humanity that he indeed was perfect, that his sinlessness was capable of taking my sinfulness away. John 1.29, John the Baptist said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Only a perfect, sinless person could do that. And Jesus came out of his temptation, his testing with an A+. No failure. No sin. There's another example from Jesus' life that's similar in this whole idea of temptation and testing. Flip in your Bibles to Matthew 21. Matthew chapter 21. Matthew 21, beginning in verse 1. The Bible reads, When they had approached Jerusalem and had come to Bethphage at the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied there and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. And if anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord has need of them, and immediately he will send them. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, gentle and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. I love how Matthew does this, by the way. He always talks, reaches back. He pulls out so many Old Testament verses to prove prophecy fulfilled in Jesus. And that's what we see right here. Verse 6, it says the disciples went and did just as Jesus had instructed them. 
And they brought the donkey and the colt and laid their coats on them, and he sat on their coats. And most of the crowd spread their coats in the road, and the others were cutting branches from the trees and spreading them in the road. And the crowds going ahead of him, those who followed, were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest! And when he entered Jerusalem, all the city was stirred, saying, Who is this? And the crowds were saying, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. Folks, today is Palm Sunday. Where we celebrate, recognize, churches around the world are, are celebrating and focusing on that Sunday. This day we just read of where Jesus rode into Jerusalem on the donkey. Palm Sunday because palm branches were being laid on the ground for Jesus to ride over. And it's a focus of the beginning of the end of the beginning. The beginning of the last week of Jesus' life. When he rode into Jerusalem... What does that have to do with testing and temptation? Because not only was Palm Sunday the day he rode into Jerusalem in triumph, it was also the day that the testing began. It was the day the testing began. For you see, at the beginning of that week, the priests of the temple would take the Passover lamb, set it aside, they, they, would, they would bind it up and they would inspect it and scrutinize it and inspect it to see that it was spotless, that it was without blemish. What's fascinating to note as you study all four gospel accounts is in the last week of Jesus' life, that's exactly what happened to him. The Pharisees were, were trying to poke holes in his story, trying to get at him, inspecting him, asking him impossible questions. And Jesus, through the whole week, inspected, tested, proved his sinlessness. Proved that he was, in fact, the spotless lamb of God. First Peter chapter 1 verse 18 says, You were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your feudal way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood. As of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. Jesus in that last week, like the Passover lamb, was inspected and found to be spotless, perfect. As Pilate himself would say, I find no fault in this man. That's how Jesus went to the cross. Well, back to Abraham. This is exactly what God is doing. He is testing the man. He is proving his faith. He is revealing the result of 57 years of preparation. This will be a test that Abraham passes with flying colors, by the way. Literally, it is the pinnacle in the faith story of Abraham. It is Abe's highest mountain. And I read the story... And honestly, I don't know if I could pass the test. God said, Rick, I want you to take your son, Corey. Take him up to the top of Mount Baker. And there when you get to the top, I want you to sacrifice him as a burnt offering before me. I don't know that I could do that. As a matter of fact, so many of the stories of people that we read about in the Bible, we go, I couldn't be like that. Paul, I couldn't handle the beatings and the stonings and the floggings and still go on in the name of Christ. Peter, I, I couldn't be like him. I, couldn't, I read these stories of all these amazing people and I could not be that way. We, we gravitate to their sinful act, their mistakes, their flaws, their failures. It's real easy to relate to Abraham back when he's sleeping with his maidservant. You know, I mean, not personally, I'm not, you know, not saying anything there. But it's easy to relate to the sins and the failures of biblical people, isn't it? It's not easy to relate to their success. Because we look at Abraham with his son Isaac up on Mount Moriah and we go, I couldn't do that. 
You're right, you couldn't do that because you haven't gone through 57 years of Abraham's life like he has. It's preparation. Well, I couldn't be like other people in the Bible either. Folks, Hebrews chapter 11, verses 36 through 38. Let me read this to you. If you ever wonder how you rate in the vast family of faith, <laughs> women receive back their dead by resurrection. Others were tortured, not accepting their release. Not accepting their release. In other words, there were people, followers of Jesus, who were put in prison but then let go, and they said, No, I'm not leaving. I'm not leaving. Amazing. So that they might obtain a better resurrection. The Hebrew writer says others experienced mockings and scourgings and chains and imprisonment. And they were stoned and they were sawn in two and they were tempted. They were put to death with the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated. Men of whom the world was not worthy. Wandering in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. And I think, that's not me. We go, oh, we're, we're really persecuted. We're really hanging on. We have to meet in a barn. Oh man, it's tough. It's difficult. The seat was really hard this morning at church. No, no, I, my, I felt it in my back all day, God be praised. I did. I was suffering for Jesus all morning long. Man, when the pastor crossed the hour mark in the message, I was suffering for Jesus. But these guys, tortured, imprisoned, sawn in two, that's not me. I couldn't do what Abraham did, but again, neither could he until he was prepared. A verse that you should know, that, that you should internalize and read over and over because it is so powerful. 1 Corinthians 10.13 Paul writes that no temptation has overtaken you, but such is common as is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, so that you will be able to endure it. Now you may have heard that verse before. I've heard it many times in my Christian life, and for me personally, I always focus on the last part of the verse, escape. God's going to give me a way of escape. Okay, so when temptation comes... I have a way out. I just got to find it. And in doing so, I completely miss the real power of the verse. God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. Abraham could not have passed this test years before. God, let me give you a, an absolute statement of fact. God knows you so intimately, so personally, that He will not allow you to be tempted or tested beyond that which you've been prepared. You will come out with success in temptation, in testing, as it comes before you, because God will not allow you to be tempted beyond that place. He is faithful. He has prepared you to deal with the temptation. Well, why do I keep sinning then? Well, see, that's, that's where we don't focus on the fact that we have been prepared. Folks, we have the preparation in our lives. And when we look at other Christians, other believers, other faithful people, and we compare ourselves, we, we can't do that. It's like a kindergartner getting upset because they can't pass a calculus test. Well, they haven't been through the schooling, the preparation to get there to be ready. But folks, this should be incredibly encouraging to us. God is preparing each of us for the tests, the trials, the temptations that will come our way down the line. The Greek word in 1 Corinthians 10.13 that's translated tempted is perosmos. 
And like its Hebrew counterpart, it does not differentiate between temptation and trial. Now listen to this important point. Satan intends temptation. That's his deal. Satan wants to tempt to tear us down. God, however, is about preparation to build us up. That's the difference. Satan will take anything he can, throw it in your way as a temptation to tear you down. God will take anything he can, throw it in your way as a preparation to build you up. To make you stronger. If you're going through a hard time in your life, a struggle, a faith struggle, and you're feeling hard pressed, understand, Satan wants you to fall, God wants to lift you up. Why does God allow me to go through this stuff? Because he's building you up. He's making you stronger and he does not have you in a position that you're not able to bear. He's already prepared you to handle that test. And that's what we see with Abraham. Amazing preparation. I love this verse, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. For we know that if the earthly tent, which is our house, is torn down, we have a building from God. A house not made with hands, Eternal in the heavens. For indeed, in this house we groan, longing to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven, inasmuch as we, having put it on, will not be found naked. For indeed, while we're in this tent, I heard my body, our bodies referred to as earth tents. I like that. Or earth suits. My physical earthly dwelling. It's something I put on. It's on my spirit for a short time. It's not eternal, it doesn't last, it does break down. And Paul says, indeed, while we are in this tent, we groan, being burdened, because we do not want to be unclothed, but to be clothed, so that what is mortal will be swallowed up by life. Now, he who prepared us for this very purpose is God, who gave us the Spirit as a pledge, as a promise. Well, in our text today, Back to Genesis 22. The testing was not for God's sake. It was for Abraham's sake. God knew what Abe would do. He knew full well how Abraham would handle it. He knew when Abraham was ready. He knows when you're ready. And he knows when I'm ready as well. And when all was said and done, Abe came to know as well that he was proven. He came through with flying colors. Well, Satan brings temptation, but God brings preparation. Now, the second thing I wanted us to look at and see this morning is even better. God does give you a strength to face and deal with trials and and, and troubles and tribulations in your life. The second thing is motivation. What is it that drives me? What is it that gives me the strength, the motivation to follow through in these things? Look at verse, verse 2. And watch, not the preparation of Abraham, but the motivation of God. He said, take now your son, your only son whom you love, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. Why again did God ask such a thing of Abraham? Even as a test of faith, doesn't it seem bizarre? Isn't it a little overwhelming Hasn't God possibly overstepped his bounds here and and just gone too far in this trial and this test? It seems extreme. But listen closely. This pinnacle of faith is also the peak of God's love. It is the shining moment early in history of the love of a father. For here we see the most important first mention in Scripture. You've heard me say it before, we've talked a lot about this, especially in the book of Genesis. There are a lot of words that are mentioned for the first time. That makes sense. 
But the big deal about them is, as they are mentioned, the context in which they're mentioned usually details that word through the rest of Scripture. As Morris in his book, The Genesis Record, writes, When an important word or concept appears for the first time in the Bible, usually in the book of Genesis, the context in which it occurs sets the pattern for its primary usage and development through the rest of Scripture. And in verse 2 of Genesis 22, we see the most important, by far, the most important first mention. This is the first time in the Bible that the word love is used. Right here where God says, take your son, your only son whom you love, Isaac, and offer him up. It's not love between a man and a woman. It's not love between brothers or sisters or family. It's not love for country. It's not even love for God. The first mention of love in the Bible is the love of a father for his son. Now, as many of you know, God was painting a historical picture, a father-son portrait, but not of Abraham and Isaac. Isaac, likely at age 33, climbed Moriah with his father to be sacrificed, but God steps in, as you'll see in, in coming weeks as we get back to this, God steps in and blocks the process. However, Jesus, at age 33, climbs Moriah with a cross on his back to be sacrificed, only this time the father does not step in. What about in the New Testament? You see all these first mentions in the Old Testament. What about in the New Testament? Check this out. The first mention of love in the four Gospels. Mark chapter 1, verse 9. And I'll just read these to you. You can jot them down if you're taking notes. Mark chapter 1, verse 9 tells us, In those days Jesus came up from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Immediately coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens open, and the Spirit of, like a dove descending upon him. And a voice came out of the heavens, You are my beloved Son. And in you I am well pleased. First mention of love in the book of Mark. How about Matthew? Well, the first mention of, of love in Matthew is Matthew chapter 3, verse 13. Verse 16, sorry. After being baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and lighting on him. And behold, a voice out of the heavens said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. The first mention of love in Mark and Matthew is the same context, the same story. A father loving his son. Well, what about Luke? Luke chapter 3, verse 21. Now when all the people were baptized, Jesus was also baptized, and while he was praying, heaven was opened, and the Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came out of heaven, You're my beloved Son, and in you I am well pleased. In all three of these Gospels, we see the fullest picture of God's love as a father to his son. How about John? Something changes when we get to the Gospel of John. For the first mention of the word love in the Gospel of John is this. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. John 3.16 The love of a father for his son. The love of Abraham for Isaac. A portrait, if you will, of the love of the father. God for His Son Jesus painted so dramatically, so overwhelmingly that we see in the first three Gospels God pouring out His heart on His Son. This is my beloved Son. This is my Son. 
I love Him with all my heart until we get to John 3.16 and we find out a love that is so great it even goes beyond this eternal love of Father for Son. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. Friday of this next week is Good Friday. Good because it marks a day that our sins were finally and once and for all forgiven. But not good in terms of what happened because it's the day that Jesus was crucified. He carried the cross to the highest pinnacle spiritually in the world. To the top of Mount Moriah. By then Golgotha, by now we call it Calvary. And the motivation for God's outrageous request to Abraham was love. Not just for Abraham, not just for the Jewish people, but love for the entire world, for anyone who would believe in Him. The context is huge. God is saying, listen, I love my son, but I love you more. I love you more. I love you so much that I will not stay my own hand. I will allow the sacrifice to go on. And in the case of Jesus, He was brutally crucified. Preparation. Motivation. And it all leads to a great invitation. For you see, Abraham knew, he knew that he and Isaac would both come back down the mountain. This is how amazing his faith was. You can look down in verse 5 of Genesis 22. It tells us that Abraham said to his young men, Stay here on, with the donkey. I and the lad will go over there. And we will worship and return to you. He knew something was going to happen. He full well believed it was, he was going to go and offer his son as a burnt offering. But he knew that he and Isaac were going to return together. In the same way that our father knew that three days later Jesus was going to come back down the mountain. Three days later Jesus was going to resurrect. We will talk about that next week on Easter Sunday. Jesus would come back to life. Resurrection to an eternity with the Father. Folks, who loves you. And Jesus' resurrection. Jesus' resurrection is a picture, it's a promise for all of us. That God who prepares us to handle every change that happens in this life is so motivated by love for us that He would cause and allow His only Son, whom He loved, to die on the cross, raising Him three days later that you and I could have the same promise of resurrection.